You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word. Uh, our text for the sermon this morning is Matthew chapter 21. Uh, if you're looking in the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, uh, you can find our text on page 826. Uh, if you're using a uh, Bible you brought from home, I hope you know where Matthew is. It's the first book of the New Testament. Uh, we are three quarters of the way through here in Matthew 21. We're going, of course, to the end of the book. Uh, we are entering in the final week of Jesus' life. And here Matthew, as an author for us, slows down. All right, we have covered sort of all of his life with lots of missing pieces up to this point. But the final week, uh, especially of his teaching and then of his suffering, his passion and his death and resurrection will occupy us uh, through the rest of the year and these final, uh, this final quarter of Matthew's gospel. This morning we have the well-known passage in front of us, the Palm Sunday uh, passage. If you uh, grew up in a church that follows the church calendar, you'll be probably familiar reading this verse and uh, maybe having a parade of palms uh, on Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Easter. Uh, this is a well-known passage often uh, read and commemorated in that way. Uh, we read it this morning not because it's Palm Sunday, of course it's not, but because it's next in our order and we follow along and show and to see what Matthew is telling us about Jesus's ministry when he enters Jerusalem. He's been characterized by a, a humility and a mercy so far. That's about to be put to the test as he enters a different world, a different reception there in the heart of the Jewish faith. Would you follow along with me, uh, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 22. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, 
Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we pray you would grant us faith today. That you would overcome our doubts. That you would overwhelm our unbelieving hearts. That you would strengthen us in our innermost being to lay hold of Christ as he has shown and presented and offered to us this morning. Would you give us the joy of the healed blind men and the healed lepers? And would we too, with hearts of faith, sing with these children, Hosanna to the son of David. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, you've, hob- you've probably heard the phrase before, that house has good bones, right? And maybe it's when you've been shopping for a house, maybe it's somebody comes over to your house and tries to compliment your house and actually uh, gives you a subtle insult about how your house looks, right? For a house to have good bones, what does it mean? It means there's something structurally good and healthy about a home, but maybe there's something else about it that doesn't look quite right. Or maybe the carpet is, is outdated, right? Maybe it's got some peeling wallpaper on the walls, right? Maybe there's something significant going on in the roof or in the basement, and it needs to be fixed up, but there's something there. There's, there's good bones, right? There's a good structure to the home. You still have to come in and do some work on it and tear it down to the studs in order to build it back up with those good bones, right? When we come to Israel in this text, as Jesus comes into the heart of Israel, into Jerusalem, He addresses a people described in other places like a house. And it is a house that has good bones, but it is also a house that is crumbling. It's a house that is coming apart at the seams. It is a house that is falling apart. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem, to the heart of Israel, to this house, to the throne room of the kingdom to restore it to bring it back from the brink, to bring it back from dead, to bring it back from crumbling, to restore it from the bad house that has those good bones. But he does it in a unique way. And he does it by showing us his own authority as king to restore this kingdom, to restore this home. And he does it by wresting that authority away from the ones who have sought intentionally or unintentionally, to destroy it. 
Jesus comes to Jerusalem to restore the kingdom. And at this very early stage, these first moments on these first days of this last week, we see his authority as a rightful king come to restore the kingdom. I want to show you Matthew's message, I believe, this morning. And that is that Jesus restores the kingdom with his authority as the rightful king. Jesus restores the kingdom with his authority as her rightful king. Three sections in our passage, and I'm going to look at the three areas of restoration. The work of restoration begins in these three areas. First, in verses 1 to 12, we see Jesus restores the throne. You see his restoring work on the throne of Israel. This famous passage called here the the triumphal entry. I'm not sure that's the, the perfect name for it, but he does enter Jerusalem in a certain way. And he does it as we might call a declarative act. Jesus doesn't say much in this first section, except showing us how he is divine in arranging uh, the, the, the donkey that's going to be prepared for him to ride. He doesn't say all that much. He lets his actions speak for him. He, has, uh, uh, he does something significant. We might call it a declarative act. And it's full of royal images. These first 11 verses is all about royalty. It's all about the throne. Look at some of the the aspects of royalty that pop up for us in these verses. The the procession itself, the laying down of the cloaks and the palm branches is sort of the ancient Near East equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. You roll out the red carpet when the celebrities come to town. You roll out the red carpet uh, for the king. This rolling out, these palm branches, the, the cloaks, the shouts... It's their version of royalty has come to town. Roll out the red carpet. They take their cloaks. uh, In verse uh, 8, it is, tells us uh, that they spread them on the road. So they take their outer garment. They lay it down on the road uh, for Jesus to pass over. This sign of acknowledging his kingship. You don't just lay your cloak down on the road for anyone. Right? It was a symbol for their bowing down and acknowledging the kingship of the one who's going to walk over these cloaks. Some of them cut down these branches, verse 9, and they, they lay them out uh, and they spread them uh, on the road. This doesn't mean all that much to us. Sounds sort of like the cloaks, but in their day, it was a, a symbol of victory. It was a national symbol of Jewish victory, laying these, these branches down for the king to pass over. It's the announcement that the king is coming or returning victoriously. And then there's the shout, the cry itself. Twice here in verse 9, repeated later uh, in the temple by the children, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save. Save us. Come, save us. As the king comes in, they cry out, welcoming him to come and save them. Now it's unclear if they're particularly making this as a cry for him to save, or is this sort of uh, their uh, uh, expression of praise that they sing to the king who's come. But it's clear that they believe that he rides in with the authority to save. Blessed is he, we read in verse 9, who comes In the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. This is taken from the end of Psalm 118, 
It's the culmination of a section of the Psalms of praise to God and his king, welcoming the king into Jerusalem. What might not be obvious to us was abundantly clear to them. Hey, here comes the king. We're going to lay down the royal red carpet. We're going to uh, praise him with shouts and cries. Son of David acknowledging his kingship. Hosanna acknowledging his authority to come and save us. All of the picture without Jesus saying a word that he is claiming to himself the crown and the throne. Now, if you can hearken back with me to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and that's the other time we've seen so clearly the claims of kingship. So clearly, at the birth of Jesus, he is treated as a king. And what happens? How does the earthly king respond then? He's not happy with this. He's not happy with a threat to his crown and to his throne. And he tries to kill him. Ends up killing many other babies instead. What's going to happen here? The king, the one who has the earthly authority is not going to be happy. And Jesus knows this, right? He could have just snuck into Jerusalem. And we read in the other Gospels, he takes an annual trip to Jerusalem. So he's used to just walking in like a normal pilgrim. He could have just put his head down and joined the crowds. Instead, he hires the donkey. He doesn't stop the people from singing and praising him. He knows he arrives as the king because he knows where he's going. All those times he has said, don't tell anyone. It's not my time yet. He's been saving up for this moment because this is the time. He knows who he is provoking with this entry. All the trappings of royalty, but then for us the strange idea of a king riding a donkey, right? And what is, the, what is so special about a king on a donkey? That seems almost silly, doesn't it? Well, think with me about the donkey for a moment, and let's be clear, because you may be thinking this. How many donkeys were there? Have you heard this challenge to Scripture that Matthew and Jesus and the prophets somehow are all confused over how many dolph do do dolphins, not dolphins, how many donkeys that Jesus rides? That would be very confusing uh, if it were dolphins. How many donkeys, right, are there in this text? Well, look at the prophet, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, comma, on a colt, comma, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, if you know how Hebrew prophecy and poetry often works, there's this parallelism where one line is explained by the next line. So mounted on a donkey, the donkey is explained as a colt, right, a young donkey, the foal, the child, of a beast of burden, another donkey. <laughs> so the point here is that Jesus is going to ride a young donkey, a colt, that the other gospel authors tell us hasn't been ridden before. That's important. But if you know anything about horses, maybe taking a donkey that's never been ridden before through a crowd of people shouting hosannas at it isn't the best idea, right? So let's bring mom along to comfort this young donkey. So that's what seems to be going on. We've got two of them. One of them only really matters, but the mom is pretty important to be there to comfort the young colt. And so we read in verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Doesn't mean that Jesus is some circus performer sitting on two donkeys at the same time, right? It's the cloaks. The cloaks have been put on both donkeys and he sits on the one on the cloaks that are on the donkey. Okay, none of you care about that, but just, just get that out of the way. We can trust what the Bible tells us, even when we might read it and there's an apparent contradiction, right? 
There is often usually a very logical explanation. And the answer here is it's a donkey and his mom. All right. Why the donkey, though? Why a donkey in the first place? Well, for two reasons. One, a donkey is a symbol of royalty. If we go back to the prophecy, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. If we go back to where this is quoting from, and we read all of Zechariah 9, 9, the whole verse in context, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? When King David was ending his life and his son Solomon was going to become king, in 1 Kings chapter 1, David sort of approving uh, and anointing Solomon as his successor as king, one of the things David said to Solomon was, ride my donkey. (laughs) Go into Jerusalem riding the royal mount, as it were. And so when we see Jesus coming in on a donkey, it would remind the people, oh yeah, the first son of David rode the royal donkey. So he must be king. But even more than that is this idea of humility in verse 5. The donkey is also a sign of humility and peace. That word humble, mounted on a donkey, is used two other times in the Gospels. Number one, it's translated meek, blessed are the meek. And number two, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Humble, meek, gentle. Jesus could have ridden another type of animal into Jerusalem. He could have chosen a war horse. He could have chosen the high and mighty, the the military approach to usher in a, a, a forceful, victorious Jewish kingdom. Instead, he chose the donkey, the low animal, the non threatening animal, the animal of humility and peace. I mean, think of it this way, kids he could have ridden a tank into town, right? I mean, that would be pretty cool to ride a tank into town. Instead, he rides a minivan. (laughs) No offense. I know there's minivans in our parking lot. It's when you think a tank shows up and a minivan shows up, one means business, right? There's something about the way he chooses to approach Jerusalem that shows his humility. It shows his peaceful intentions. It shows his desire to come to the poor and the needy and the lowly. He will come Don't get me wrong, one day, on a mighty war horse, that day is in the future. Today, as he enters Jerusalem, he rides the lowly donkey. He fulfills this empty throne by his humiliation. The path for Jesus to the throne is not straight to victory. It is through the cross. It is through the grave. And we see it even the way he chooses to enter Jerusalem, to restore the throne. What does that mean for you and me? It means there is time for us to, by grace, come to the Lord through Jesus. If it was a war horse on this day, there would be not much hope for us now, hundreds of years later, because it would have been over. He comes on a donkey ready to stop for the blind men, like we saw last week, as it were ready to bend down for you and me and usher us in to his train unto the throne. 
Jesus' work of restoration begins by restoring the throne. From that royal image, he switches to a religious image. And we see secondly in our passage, the second area of restoration is the temple. Verses 12 to 17. Jesus restores the temple. The temple had a central role in the ancient Near East for the Jewish people to worship. They were called to go to Jerusalem and the temple three times a year for annual feasts. They were called to make sacrifices there. Sometimes it was hard to travel for days and days with animals to make sacrifices. So instead, they'd bring some money with them. And when they got there, they would just buy the animal to make the sacrifice. And so to provide a good service and to make a buck, there were some money changers and some animal sellers around the temple in Jerusalem. But it was sort of convenient that they were outside of the temple. Wouldn't it be more convenient if they were just in the temple itself? And so over time... Those money changers and those sellers of pigeons, the animals for sacrifice, came into the temple itself. And so verse 12, we read, Jesus entered the temple. Now, we're assuming this is the, 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 the court around the temple complex itself, commonly known as the court of the Gentiles, a big area, a big courtyard that is full of all of these sellers. And Jesus comes Not so much in his humility on a donkey, right? (laughs) He comes flipping tables. He comes driving out these sellers, kicking them out of the temple. And you see his words, his famous words. My house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Those words in and of themselves are powerful enough, but they hearken back to the words of the prophet. So what's going wrong here in the temple is it's being treated as a den of robbers. Listen to how Jeremiah describes the wrong use of the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8. Speaking to the people, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all those other abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? What is a den of robbers? For Israel, it was the people who broke the commands of God and then showed up to church like nothing had happened. They lived their immoral, law-breaking lives all week and then showed up at the temple and said, God has delivered us as if they had never done anything wrong in the first place. The specific sin that Jesus is alluding to, listed there if we keep reading in Jeremiah chapter 8, is the sin of oppressing the sojourner. The sojourner, who is allowed in the court of the Gentiles, just the Gentile converts to Judaism. And they weren't allowed in because it was so crowded by the Jewish people trying to make some money. So those who are on the outskirts, who trusted in Yahweh, who awaited that same Messiah, could not even enter the temple complex because it is so crowded by the buyers and sellers. The warning here, amongst other things, is that you can have the right form of worship, but it can be empty if your life is empty. 
You could say all the right things. You could make all the right sacrifices. You could show up at all the right feasts. But if you are living an immoral and rebellious life, it is, not, it is worse than nothing in the eyes of God. Instead, the temple is to be a house of prayer. That comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56. And he says there in verse 6, the foreigner, the foreigner, excuse me, who join themselves to the Lord, that's the Gentiles in our current context, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring, he says, to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That is saying he will bring in the nations to come to his house and make them joyful. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What's going on is that God promises to gather the outcast of the nations into his temple, but national Israel is filling up the temple so the outcast can't come in. So they're keeping the very nations that God promises to reach out of the temple by their money-making activities and God-dishonoring worship. So look back in our passage. What does Jesus do? It's a two-stage approach. As he cleanses the temple, what does he do next? Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is what the temple's for in the first place. This is what was not happening in the temple. Jesus drives out the perversions and what's going wrong so that he might fulfill the purpose of the temple, that the nations might come in. That the blind and the lame that can't get in amongst the crowd of all the money makers finally now have space to come to Jesus, and Jesus heals them. It's an incredible scene as we keep reading. The children are crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The kids don't know any better. They've picked up the cry from the hillside, right? And now they're in the temple. Jesus is driving out. He's healing. And the kids are serenading him with the cry of Hosanna, save us, son of David. How could you not rejoice at this moment? And yet there we meet again the chief priests and the scribes. And last word in verse 14, they were indignant. How dare Jesus allow these kids to praise him as the son of David? He rebukes them in verse 16 from Psalm 8. We don't have time to look at that, but Psalm 8 verse 2, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared Praise. Praise for who? Praise for God. Jesus is saying here, y'all aren't praising me as God, but the children get it. <laughs> the children get it. The least of these. <laughs> the least educated. The least trained. The least important. They see it. They see what's going on in the temple complex. You miss it. You see, if we're tearing down this house to the studs, one of these studs is the universal temple, a temple for all people. It's one of the reasons we don't have an American flag here in church. Not that we don't love our country. Not that most of us will celebrate it and thank God for it tomorrow, right, on Memorial Day. But there is a particular image here 
that the house and the meeting place of God, the temple of God, is not a national temple. It is not reserved for a certain people, a certain tribe, a certain tongue, a certain ethnicity. It is for all people. It is for the foreigners to be gathered in. And Jesus doesn't just fix the old temple. We're going to see he actually takes it over. Because it's going to be destroyed and he is going to be raised. And he fulfills the purposes of the temple. Jesus is the true and living temple of God, the Savior for all people from all the nations. You see, the problem in Israel, it's not just that they had bad worship because they lived sinful lives. That was certainly bad enough. But to make matters worse, we see thirdly that they were actually dead. They were actually dead. Our final area of restoration in this text is verses 18 to 22. Jesus restores the tree that is Israel. He restores the throne. He restores the temple. Finally, verses 18 to 22, he destroys the tree. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have been confused about this part of the story for a long time, right? (laughs) Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem. It's the next day. Uh, He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He goes to the fig tree to have a fig to eat. He finds there's nothing on it, and he curses the fig tree, and the fig tree at once withers. Mark's version is a little bit different. It's the same account. Uh, They line up uh, just fine. There's really two lessons going on here. The first lesson is one of judgment. Jesus is judging the fig tree. He curses it, and it withers up. The problem here, you'll note, how is the fig tree described? It has leaves on it. I'm not going to get into how fig trees bear their fruit, but just to summarize it as this, if it has leaves, it should have fruit, right? So he sees the leaves from afar, he goes over to the leaves because it looks alive, and he looks upon closer inspection, there's no fruit. It's advertising that it's alive, but it's bearing no fruit. It's sort of like when you drive by Krispy Kreme and you see that lit, lit up neon red sign, right? The hot now donut sign. And you can't wait to stop in and get a hot donut. And you wait and you pull up to the drive-thru and they tell you, oh, I'm sorry, the sign's on. We don't have any hot donuts. If you could curse Krispy Kreme in that moment, you would, right? (laughs) The problem is the fig tree appears alive, but inwardly it's dead. Fig trees and vineyards and vines are used throughout the scriptures to speak of God's people. God's people are his vineyard. We're going to see some parables about this coming up soon. Two other passages. I'm not, I'm not going to read them. Jeremiah 8.31 and Micah 7.1 both speak of a fig tree yielding no figs. Just as the temple is barren in her worship, so, true, so, so too is even Israel itself. Supposed to be alive like a fig tree is in fact barren. Because when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, what does he find? He finds a place that looks alive with all of the leaves and all of the stuff, but there's no fruit. There's no faith. It is an external shell of a religion, and he will have nothing to do with it. Now, the disciples are amazed at this. In fact, verse 20 tells us that they marvel. That Jesus can wither a fig tree. I mean, it makes you wonder, have y'all been paying attention to all the other stuff he does, right? And yet they seem to marvel and they seem to ask him, can we do this too? That seems to be the, the gist of their, their marveling. And Jesus answers 
using a key word for us, and that is the word faith. If you have faith, twice he says that. Why? Because the fig tree representing Israel with all of the leaves but no fruit is faithless. And he is telling them, he has come to restore the tree that is the people of God from a dead faith to a living faith. And what is a living faith? It's faith. It is trusting in Christ. It is believing that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah. It is singing and crying to him, Hosanna, come save us. This is not a passage about how you just need to phrase your prayers right and you can get rich. Throw that out, right? The moving of the mountain is hyperbole to speak of God doing whatever in response to our prayers of faith. Jesus addressed this in chapter 17. Go back and listen to Jim's great sermon on that a couple months ago. Where we see why can the disciples not do what they're trying to do in driving out the spirits. And they are revealed of not having faith. The problem is actually not that they have faith. They have faith. It's just faith in themselves and not faith in Christ. We don't control the mountains. God does. We don't move mountains. God does. And so we pray to him. This passage is a great encouragement that God hears and answers our prayers and that a living faith is a praying faith. Not the trappings of the leaves, not the sacrifices, not the temple, not the money changing, not all that external stuff that Jesus curses, but living, dependent, praying faith. Jesus will make a living people. By his death and resurrection, he will die on behalf of his rebellious, dead people, and he will make in his resurrection us alive in him. It's the image of the vine and the branches. We, the branches, are dead without him. He is the living vine, and he takes us by grace, and he grafts us in. He brings us in, and he fills us with life so that we don't look like we're bearing fruit, but have nothing. We're empty and vapid, no, rather, by Christ. We are restored and made alive forever in him. This is his work in the restoration project. And he's the only one with the authority to do it. Maybe you've tried to restore your home. Maybe you've tried to take it down to the studs and it's gone horribly wrong, right? You need somebody. You need the experts. You need the one with the authority. And that is what Jesus comes to Jerusalem to do. As king, he ascends the throne through the humility of the cross. As the true and living temple, he drives out the perversions and he flings wide the door that all may come to him through the way of the cross. And as the tree, he dies so that we might live and have that life in him. This is what he's doing. This is why he is confronting Israel. And we'll close with this. Do you see there's two reactions, right? There are the religious leaders, and then there's the rejoicing children. Let me ask you this as we close. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? Are you indignant that somebody would actually praise Jesus as Lord? Do you see him riding on a donkey and you think that's utter foolishness? 
As you drive out the religious stuff in the temple, and you think, well, that's actually the stuff we trust in and we need in our lives. Do you find the Bible gives us a general sense of goodness and morality, but trusting in Christ, that's just foolish? Or are you like these children? The audacity of children in the temple with Jesus driving out and healing and bringing people in to cry out, Hosanna, save us to the Son of David. Our King has come to restore us to God. Let us follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are indeed our living King. You are the humble king that endured the cross and despised the shame that rode that donkey into Jerusalem. You are the true and living temple in whom we have life and peace and joy everlasting. And you are the living tree. And in you and in you alone do we find life both here and in the next world. Lord, as we contemplate this morning your humility to come on a donkey, open our hearts to believe and to turn and to trust. May we not meet you on that day when you come with a war horse, except in faith and in trust and in belief. Lord, bear in us, in our hearts and in our church, the fruit of a living faith that only you give by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.